0: Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Lisa Forrest from Live Oak Bank. Do I need direct industry experience in the company I'm about to acquire?
1: That's a great question, Alex, and we get that quite often from probably every day from our our searchers that we're talking with. And I'm going to speak about this from specifically an SBA lending experience. If we're talking about SBA lending, our conventional lending, we might answer that a little differently if we have seller role in the cap stack and, you know, structure, but from an SBA lending perspective, most of our searchers do not have industry experience and we're a lender that is expecting industry agnostic and deal flow. So, I would say, no, we don't require industry experience for the most part. There are those cases where we might have very technical acquisitions. We might have very technical industries. We might have a a deal maybe where there's a a high dependency on the seller. So we might be looking for very specific industry experience in those sort of rare cases. Like I said, we're industry agnostic and we're looking at more so the experience level of our searcher. What's their resume look like? What industries have they worked on? Are there complementary skill sets that transfer into this transaction? This is why we spend so much time making sure the cash flow is good, that the structure is significant, that maybe there's enough of a seller note to help with transition. So we're going to ask a lot of things about the, the transaction from a transition risk and transition risk analysis perspective, because we typically don't have industry experience.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. To learn more about Live Oak Bank's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to their office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, and Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at a e bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guests on this episode are Justin Burris and Tim Ludwig. Who together have co founded a new search investment fund named Majority Search. Majority Search aims to be the preferred buyer of small companies while giving searchers the chance to own the majority of the companies they operate. This is a brand new model they've spent the last year working on, and I'm so excited to see it finally become public. This episode was recorded live on February 4th at SM Bash in Orlando, Florida, in front of over 100 attendees, my first podcast ever in front of an audience. We did have a few microphone snafus here and there, and the overall quality was affected some which I apologize for. Even so, this is a fantastic episode that I hope you thoroughly enjoy. Over the course of the conversation, Tim and Justin share their inspiration for Majority Search, the keys to being a better buyer, great investors they both admire and learn from, and advice for building great relationships. If you wanna learn more about Majority Search, reach out to Justin and Tim at majoritysearch.com. Please enjoy the first live conversation of Think Like an Owner. One quick piece of background, so Tim and Justin were some of the earliest folks who reached out
1: after I started
0: the podcast. I think Tim reached out in April 2019 after the fourth episode, so very early on. He sent me a DM on Twitter, and we started chatting after that, and he came up to Portland and visited a few times for business. And then actually the same year in 2019, I got to know Justin and Justin at the time was working on a few experiments around search funds and how to run uh, a search investment firm a little better, and just some different w- ways to play with the model a little bit. And we got to chat about that. And he, you know, hearing that he worked at BDT and all of these other projects, he was curious about and wanted to learn more about. It um, so was kind of fun. And so one time, Tim visited Portland before I moved to Omaha, and I drove him to the airport. And on the way to the airport, he talked about this search model of potentially running a little bit different search fund with a slightly better model for searchers, and he was going to work with a guy from BDT, and I thought, okay, is that is that the one guy I know from BDT who's also interested in search funds? And it turns out was, so I got to know both of you separately, which was really, really fun, and so I'm excited to share this a little bit with you both. Tim, most folks are going to be more familiar with you, so for intros, we'll start with you. Give us your 30 to 60 second intro, and we'll go to Justin then.
2: Sure, great. All right so my name is Tim Ludwig and I've been investing in search funds for almost 15 years now. Um, Started with a very small fund in the depths of the great financial crisis. Uh, First investment was in January of 2008. Invested in about 80 different search funds over the next decade or so, resulting in about 60 different acquisitions. And then three or four years ago made sort of a pivot and moved down market to one to two million dollar EBITDA size businesses that I bought off my own balance sheet. So I have a small portfolio of three companies that I own in different industries throughout uh, the United States. And then uh, over about the past year, have been working on developing a new concept for search fund investment that we'll talk a little bit about here uh, with Justin Burris. Hey
3: everyone. Hey Alex, uh, thank you uh, for having us. Good to be here. Uh, I'm Justin Burris. Along with Tim, I am the co-founder of Majority Search. So Majority Search is an investment firm that partners with talented operators to find and buy and grow small companies, taking a lot of inspiration from the search fund model with a couple of unique twists uh, that we've added as well. And before Majority Search, I was with a firm called BDT Capital Partners for a little over six years, which is a, a much larger investment firm now that advises and invests in Uh, large founder and family-owned companies, and really in a lot of ways what we are doing is taking some of the lessons from working with some of the largest and most successful family companies in the world and applying those to help operators uh, buy much smaller companies and grow them over time and almost build them in the mold of some of what I've seen at the uh, larger end of the market. So incredibly excited about what we're building and I hope it's a little bit different in that it appeals to some people that may not otherwise get involved in entrepreneurship through acquisition.
0: yeah, it's really exciting to see this project you both had talked about for a while actually become public and see your messages on Twitter and emails and all this other stuff. It's been really fun to follow and see come alive. Let's get right into it though. so tell us a little bit about what is majority search, and perhaps a good framing for what it is would be a comparison to how the traditional search fund model works and then how Majority Search pr- tries to work with some of the pros and cons of that model to create something new and something perhaps fresh or better for searchers.
3: Probably the easiest way to think about Majority Search is as sort of a blend between traditional search and self-funded search in some ways. Um, the easiest way to describe it is sort of in contrast to the traditional search fund model which is often large groups of investors in any given search and then also in the resulting acquisitions, well, we are really the sole backer, um, both for the search and for the acquisitions. Uh, The second piece, which is pretty meaningfully different, is just thinking about uh, incentive alignment and compensation, where for the most part, uh, there's a pretty static structure earning up to call it 25% or so equity in a deal where roughly two thirds of that is not based on performance. And I looked at the model and sort of thought to myself, I believe compensation should be based on performance. If we could do a better job of tying compensation to performance, I think that would align interests for all parties. And so we set out this from the viewpoint of trying to offer a uh, broader range of awards, but having them be more fully tied to performance. So offering people a chance to actually earn majority of a company, which wouldn't otherwise, in most cases, be possible, Without a huge net worth coming into the model or uh, with an SBA loan, and you know I, I came at this you know partially inspired by my own experiences, where I looked at a deal a couple of years ago, thought it was you know very interesting, had all the characteristics I was looking for, but ultimately I couldn't get comfortable with a personal guarantee on the SBA loan for a multiple of my net worth, and I said, if there are other people that are out there that are looking at things like me and get to that point and just don't have the stomach for the personal guarantee. Uh, maybe we can build something that still gives the path to majority that they couldn't otherwise get in the traditional search fund asset class, uh, which they would find more appealing.
0: Yeah, can you dive a little bit more into some of the inspiration behind majority search? This has been a lot of thinking that you've done for several years and just looking at the opportunities set for what searchers have available today and not to mention all of the uh, baby boomers passing on their businesses and trying to transition them. There's this big opportunity that you've been studying for a while. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what was the inspiration behind all this.
3: Yeah, you know, I think there are a few themes there. Let's hit on, and then, Tim, uh, you should as well. So, I mean, like, setting the stage, I think we saw a lot of the same themes that probably everybody in this room has as well. Aging baby boomers that are looking to sell their businesses in order to retire. That is a growing trend. It's not abating anytime soon. There is a huge opportunity in transitioning small businesses to the next generation. And at the same time, looked at, uh, the rising generation of incredibly talented younger operators, who in many cases are trapped at larger companies, thriving in their careers and are eager for more responsibility. And I thought to myself, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition, still relatively niche but growing quickly, is is really a path for them to gain the autonomy and agency in their careers that they're looking for. And uh, there could be an amazing investment firm that emerges. To match those operators, equip them with capital and allow them to pursue opportunities to buy small businesses from retiring owners. So, you know, that that's sort of the macro backdrop. The other piece, I I think, you know, it's only natural. I'm a a total uh, Berkshire acolyte and you know, probably the most interesting things that Buffett says are not about what he can do, but about what he actually can't do. And two of the things that he says he can't do is he now has to buy larger businesses. He can't buy small companies anymore, but, you know, he's the first to uh, confess that the returns are more attractive for smaller companies. And two is he says he can't buy businesses that don't have management in place because he can't supply it. And I thought to myself, well. There is this technology out there called the Search Fund. It's been around since the 80s. It's performed incredibly well over a long time period. I think it basically is the future. It just isn't evenly distributed yet. And to the extent we could take something that's worked for a very long time period and broaden access to that approach, which has worked you know, fabulously well and also created uh, you know, amazing opportunities for people to build really rich and rewarding careers for themselves, uh, you know, that's something that I would love to be a part of.
2: I'll just, I think that's a pretty complete explanation. I'll just add, I think Justin came at this from sort of a top-down, more theoretical, like market-based approach. And I was sort of in the weeds, sort of grassroots, looking at just what I was experiencing around me. And initially with the traditional self-funded or funded searchers, there are only a certain number of highly pedigreed Ivy League MBAs that are graduating each year to comprise the supply of labor to, fu- to fuel that model. And then through Twitter was seeing this explosion of interest from people that were pursuing this self-funded path, either with SBA loans or alternative or even friends and family money. A- and connecting the dots for me, I thought, you know, this, this model is so powerful and I'm such a big believer in small business and entrepreneurship that it would be wonderful to figure out a way to democratize that even further to give a lot of people access to an opportunity that they might not otherwise consider and so iterating on that model about what worked with the traditional funded search what were some of the good parts of the self-funded search model and how could we integrate the best of those and maybe fill in some of the gaps to create this middle ground was really the genesis of of what became majority search and building
0: on inspiration just a little bit more you have just throughout our conversations mentioned a lot of different other niche buyers of small businesses. And there are certain tactics that each of them do or certain strategies and uh, the ways they go about buying small businesses that you've kind of taken pieces of over time. Can you talk about some buyers that you've found really valuable and studying in designing something like majority search?
1: Yeah,
3: look, I, th- I think there are a lot of you know what I consider better buyers out there for specific types of businesses. And, and part of the approach with Majority Search was how do we craft a better buyer for small businesses more broadly? And so, I mean, when I just think about what makes a better buyer a better buyer, there are examples like Thrasio, for example, which is an amazing uh, buyer for Amazon FBA businesses and is able to pursue a bunch of them because... They tend to look very much in common with one another. And, you know, if you look at strategic acquirers, you can go through a list. Constellation software for niche vertical SaaS businesses, waste management for disposal businesses, AB InBev for, you know, anything in uh, beer, wine, or spirits. I mean, like, for the most part, the better buyers out there for specific types of businesses are folks that either are deeply involved in those companies to begin with, so they actually have access to opportunities that they might not otherwise have, And then they also actually know how to add value to those businesses and really grow them over time. And, you know, in some cases, people call those synergies. Really what we're trying to do uh, is create a better buyer for small businesses writ large, regardless of what industry they lie in. So Berkshire, in many ways, has done this for, you know, call it large family companies, where... Uh, you know, through all of the aspects of what Berkshire has constructed over the years. They've done an amazing job of building this home for, you know, very large businesses, basically making themselves the Metropolitan Museum for families who care about their legacy. And I think at the smallest end of the market, there are the pieces that are held in common across transitioning small businesses, which we could really focus on and really try to get right. And probably the single largest element of that is that for the most part, and you see this in Biz by sell, for example. Look at the reasons why people sell. The vast majority of the time, it's uh, folks looking to retire. And if we could basically pair both capital and management together so that we can replace a retiring owner-operator who's wearing two hats as the owner and the operator, you know, provide both management and capital,
0: that really is the key to uh, investing in small businesses and transitioning them at scale. And a number of the buyers you mentioned, some of them are really industry-focused, like Constellation or AB and Bev, waste management. But then some are very broad and diversified, like Berkshire, of course. What are some of the challenges of designing a firm, at least on either side? I imagine both have a set of pros and cons. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those might be?
3: Yeah, and Tim Wayne here as well. I mean, I think... Like the two pieces that are critical are having access to deal flow and actually being able to grow those companies over time. So, so the pieces there, you know, you can talk a lot about you know, the search and the acquisition and you know, how advantaged are you by focusing on a specific industry versus having a broad focus. And you know, even uh, there are a lot of private equity firms out there that tend to uh, start out for the most part as pretty industry-specific before they actually go broad. More from the outset, starting broad, and the reason for that, really, is that um, you know there's this what people call an everything tastes like chicken layer in small businesses, and if uh, we can almost engage in a talent arbitrage, I think of it as, of finding incredibly you know smart, ambitious, hungry, you know, gritty people and parachuting them into a segment of the economy that might not have a prior owner who's been you know keeping their foot on the pedal for a long period of time. You know that's powerful in so many instances, and uh, ultimately, it's the characteristics of a business that uh, make it, you know, very attractive or not. I think if you look at any industry, you know, there are going to be a couple of pockets that are very interesting in it, and I wouldn't feel comfortable, for example, writing off, uh, you know, just about anything.
2: I, I think an interesting question for anybody that aspires to buy a business or sell a business, I suppose you have to go through the same exercise, is to think what's the platonic ideal for the perfect buyer, right? And, and the answer is going to be different for every seller. But that, I think, is the starting point to think about crafting your own narrative when you're going out to the market to talk with intermediaries and sellers about why you're the right person for their opportunity. If you think about what those criteria might be, the probably the one that comes to mind first is price, right? Whoever is going to pay the most is going to be an advantage buyer in that market. In a lot of cases, strategics are able to use that to their advantage because they've got synergies and other aspects that allow them to bid up uh, assets to higher values and generate the same levels of returns as a, as a buyer that maybe doesn't have those attributes. I think you know committed capital base as opposed to having to going and passing the hat each time is something that's viewed favorably by the market. Competent management that's experienced and maybe networked within the industry is helpful. I and mean, you can go down this list of criteria. And then I think the exercise for each of us is to think how close to that platonic ideal can we come? And it's also a great filtering mechanism, right? You might say, these kinds of deals, I know that I'm not going to be a preferential buyer. And so I can discard that more quickly, which is a useful thing because it's economizing your time and helping you to elevate priorities uh, or situations that are priorities where you're a better fit. Uh, and that's what we're really trying to do as buyers, all of us, is to, is to make that perfect match. How close can we get so that we're really satisfying as many needs of the seller at the point of transaction at the same time they're meeting our needs as a buyer. And, and so whether it's majority search and what we think is a model that's going to serve a part of the market in a compelling and differentiated way or an individual buyer that's just prospecting in their own community here in Orlando, I think everybody needs to have that story in their mind to think about what's my edge? What's my advantage? How do I, how do I tell that story and articulate that value proposition to the, to the people representing the seller or the seller themselves so that I am seen in their mind as the perfect buyer?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's interesting too. The, so the two ingredients there, there's the capital, and then there's the management. The management, ultimately, it's up to the person that we're partnering with to be the perfect buyer for any given opportunity. You know, if you're from Cincinnati or you have experience in a certain industry, whatever it is, like some way of building a personal affinity, hugely important. I think ultimately that depends on our partners and who you know is ultimately the spearhead of the search effort. And then there's the capital part of the equation, which is the piece that is common across everybody who's working and. Uh, it's important to shape capital the right way, Um, and all capital does have a shape. I mean, Tim mentioned the level of committedness for capital is an easy way to differentiate yourself if uh you know this kind of a continuum here all the way on one hand you could be a family office that has a bank account that is able to write a check for the full equity amount tomorrow on the other hand is probably something more like an independent sponsor that ultimately would have to get a deal under exclusivity before and you know go out and pass the hat to raise the capital before they can ultimately close and generally the more committed your capital is as a buyer, the more appealing you are to sellers. So, you know, thinking about how we position ourselves as hopefully a preferred buyer, um, it's having more committed capital, which also helps the operators that we partner with be the best buyers that they can be as well. You know, the other piece on shape of capital, which is super critical, is just the uh, term, because all capital does have a term, Sellers, for the most part, have built their businesses over long time periods, like placing their businesses in the hands of others who are going to treat it like a family company themselves and are longer-term oriented. And, uh, you know, I think traditional search, say, on average, is roughly four to seven-year hold periods. Our preference, really, is that it's hard enough to find an amazing opportunity to begin with. You know, people take up to two years to do it, for the most part. And if you've uh, put the blood, sweat, and tears into finding an amazing opportunity... Uh, it's usually worth it to ride it out and continue compounding over long time periods and optimize for multiple of money rather than IRR. And uh yeah, you know, we're you know we're I would say as patient a capital provider as exists out there. Um, really, the intention is to build long-term private companies.
0: So you talked a lot about building the perfect buyer for small businesses, but what goes into being a perfect owner? So after you've acquired that company and it's it's being run, there's a management team or a searcher. What goes into building, what, what are the pieces of have, being a perfect owner for that company over a, a longer time horizon?
3: Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of pieces. Probably the you know one of the foremost among them is it's good stewardship. Small businesses are people's life's work. They're all of their relationships. I mean, their employees, their customers, their suppliers, their families. These are not financial assets. These are you know businesses and relation webs of relationships really that people are deeply personally invested in and nobody wants to sell to a buyer who's going to do damage to that web of relationships and so being somebody in selling to somebody is really entrusting those relationships to them and i mean it starts with acting with integrity and kindness and humility and understanding of you have to listen to everybody else around you and not You can't go into a small business with the expectation that you're going to ride roughshod over everything that's been built before. I mean, you know, the number one tenant before anything else is do no harm. And after you've done no harm, then you can think about uh, what it means to continue to grow. But the other piece on that is I think, you know, a lot of sellers are interested in transitioning their companies to somebody that's not going to keep things the same they're also going to grow them. So going in with the mindset that there are specific levers you're gonna pull and there are specific ways that you're gonna grow and those ways are in accordance with the values that pre-exist your acquisition. I mean, it's um, ultimately, the short answer
0: is grow, but grow the right way. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that's been kind of interesting that you've built on so far here and the rise of more permanent capital holding companies illustrates too is, There seems to be, at least from the way I see it, there's a number of models that are trying to get closer and closer and closer to what a high net worth individual would invest in off their own balance sheet, how they would behave versus with other people's money. And it seems like each of these models gets a little bit closer. How close do you think something like Majority Search is to that style of investing?
2: It's amazing. Just even in the last five years, the willingness for investors to commit capital on more permanent terms has gone through a huge shift. Five years ago, if you would have gone out to investors and said, I want to raise permanent capital or something that's measured in decades, the door would have been slammed in your face by almost everyone immediately. And now there's just a much more willingness, a much greater willingness for people to engage in that dialogue and to consider it. Um, And so, Alex, as you were saying, I think it is becoming a closer reflection of what high net worth individuals do off of their own balance sheet that have these indefinite time periods. And we've tried to honor that. We we firmly believe in that, that the power of compounding is best best earned over multiple multiple decades. And so our structure is sort of a quirky hybrid where there's a traditional 10-year fund life, but then at the end of the fund life, investors will have the discretion on a deal-by-deal basis to opt into continuation vehicles to roll their equity and continue on potentially indefinitely. So they, they have both discretion as well as an evergreen time period.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we raised a fund. We didn't want to raise a fund. I mean, I think we almost got comfortable with the fund construct despite it being a fund. We had to sort of rewrite the rules of what a fund could be in order to enable longer term holds than is otherwise conventional for a uh, fixed life fund. Um, I mean, we went to the drawing board to come up with something that we felt served our uh, partners, our investors, and the companies that ultimately sell to us as well as possible and enables optionality for long-term holds um, without necessarily locking people in but i mean really the goal is we want to be as close to the way that family companies operate as we possibly
0: can so if you're an operator who's confident in your skills and you feel like you can run a company and but you don't really have the capital around you what are some things that you advise them to do whether it's working with certain buyers or or, or approaching operators what what are some advice points that through your time researching Majority Search that you've come up with?
3: Yeah, you know, a couple things. One, I, I think it does depend on what you want to do, and everybody wants to do different things. If you want to buy a single company and grow it, I mean, the, the best thing to do if you don't have capital is to affiliate with folks that do have capital. So that could mean self-funded, traditional, you know, family office-sponsored searches. I mean, there are sort of a broader range of options out there that never existed before. Um, but I think that finding a way to... Uh, get as close to committed possible to committed capital as possible is probably the best uh, and easiest way to differentiate yourself as a buyer. And this is increasingly popular, actually, the idea that people want to pursue roll-ups. And even, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who are interested in raising funds. I think it is easier to raise capital for a specific deal than it is to raise for a blind pool. I mean, for a lot of reasons, investors can you know, see and touch the specific company that you're going out to buy. You can underwrite that much more easily than you can a couple of guys that uh, are going out to pursue deals. The other piece, of it that I think is actually critical, is a lot of funds ultimately start out deal by deal. You know, there are relatively you know few first-time funds that raise a committed pool of blind capital to you know, pursue ten acquisitions. Mostly they do one and then they do another and then they talk to their investors and pull them together and stitch them together into a single vehicle that has exposure across multiple assets. Um, So that's actually even probably the the more common approach and even if you pursue something that's one off, I wouldn't necessarily say that that shuts the door on a fund. The other piece is just uh, roll-ups. I I mean look, a lot of people are interested in pursuing roll-ups, usually the right answer is get comfortable with one company and then see what makes the most sense over time and sort of accrete like Carl in whatever direction is the most natural progression for the business. Um, so yes, you can uh, go in with a specific thesis about industry consolidation, and sometimes those can uh, make all the sense in the world, but it usually makes sense to keep your eyes on the asset that's in front of you first for at least a little while.
2: I just to add on one thing. I, there's maybe a less obvious answer that I think is really compelling that I don't see too many people doing, although I know it happens all the time. I think it's just sort of done quietly, which is entrepreneurship through apprenticeship which I would define as somebody either is already working with an organization or is approached them about buying it, but that option isn't on the table. There's a seller that's willing to retire, but maybe not today. And so you affiliate yourself with them usually as an employee, work there for a period of time, which I view as sort of extended paid diligence, and then can create a very favorable transition structure to take over the business that you've then been operating for a long period of time. To me, it's, it's the best way to de-risk an acquisition and also I think would tend to le- lend itself towards more favorable terms. And so your question I think was, what do you do if you don't have the capital? Th- that actually pays you to buy the business and then you can you know, maybe get 100% seller financing or a banking loan or something. But I think that is a very viable path that I probably should get a little bit more attention than it seems to.
0: I know there's, a, there's an
2: entrepreneurship organization,
0: uh, Entrepreneurs on Deck, I believe is the is the name of that it. camp. It's probably the wrong one, but there's a VC group effectively that goes and finds entrepreneurs or people who should be entrepreneurs and then turns them into entrepreneurs and helps them find a co-founder. That seems like something, the entrepreneurship through apprenticeship, it seems like a model that something like Majority Search or even perhaps a separate fund within Majority Search could do is connect those folks who want to be operators but want to de-risk things a little bit with operators or CEOs or owners who want to transition a company over time and perhaps train someone while that happens. Is, it, is that a model that you think could work or maybe perhaps you've already seen someone else try?
2: I haven't seen somebody try to do that. I think it could work. I don't know that majority search or any one entity needs to try and create a program like that. I think, I mean, I just view our role as trying to be supportive of this whole ecosystem. And so if we find opportunities where that's the desire of the seller, like I think we would just out of trying to benefit the community, try and match those people up anyway.
3: I mean, I think that's right. Like ultimately we are building an ecosystem. You know, we have a relatively dispersed group of investors. We have Uh, you know, we're hoping to partner with multiple operators, we're receiving inbounds from businesses that are looking to transition. It's only natural to try to add value to all of those parties however we can. And I think, um, you know, even already we've received some inbounds actually that resemble the uh, characteristics that you've described. And those are super interesting opportunities. Um, I think if we can find ways to add value there, we'll
0: do so. Earlier on, you mentioned, and we talked about this before, but how Berkshire Hathaway is so well known as a buyer of small businesses or not small, not small businesses, large, very large businesses now. Um, They've gotten bigger. Yes, they have. Uh, And there's a certain cachet and uh, reputation that they've developed such that owners want to sell to Berkshire Hathaway because there's almost this, a little bit of status boost, perhaps among peers, knowing that you if you sold a company to Warren Buffett, that's a pretty big deal. If Warren Buffett believes your company was valued enough and and valuable enough for him and his firm, so if you think of that kind of reputation building, how do you do that as a new buyer? Where yeah. better? Okay. So how do you how do you think about building that cachet from scratch when you you're starting from zero? I mean, look, I think it does
3: like all things like reputation takes time like ultimately acting with integrity over a long time period is the way to get there that that sort of thing doesn't happen overnight that comes from doing the right thing in a reliable fashion repeatedly over many years ultimately you know when when a seller has built their business over a very long time period you know deals unless they're being shopped by a broker you know even then like they've got to get comfortable with you as a buyer um so it's being honest and open and straightforward, and and getting to know people, and not just a professional sense, but also a personal sense. And hopefully, you know, if you don't have the brand at the outset, it it comes through building that personal relationship at the beginning, and then over time, you know, those should scale, and reputations travel quickly.
0: So there's a couple more uh, questions I'd love to ask you, but I'm very excited to hear your closing question answers. And Tim, we've already asked you these questions on the podcast, so I'll I'll let you rest, but. Justin, starting with you, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted?
3: Yeah, I, I love this question because I would love to teach college classes. The one that, I mean, honestly, the skill that's been most advantageous to me throughout my career has always been research um, and the ability to find information that I'm looking for and basically bang my head against the internet until an answer falls out. And uh, more often than not, it does. But sometimes it takes a little bit more head banging than others. And I think you can... There are you know, ways to be more efficient with those efforts and to be more effective in those efforts, and there's sort of a resource knowledge that has uh, been a huge boon for my career, and I would love to share with others as well.
0: How might you design that class? What would you have students do?
3: I mean, really, in reality, look into specific esoteric topics, You know, something that nobody's ever thought about before. I don't know, something like beekeeping and find something about beekeeping that is super interesting or novel, you know, something that others don't necessarily think about, and then present the information in a way that's digestible and truth-seeking. It's both subjects, it's companies. I mean, ultimately, it's sort of doing work to get to the answers
0: you're looking for.
3: Um, and I think it's, it's both hugely helpful and also wildly under- underappreciated.
0: Have you done any research on beekeeping? Maybe it's a good business? Yes.
3: <laughs> I thought I had a way to invest. I don't, but maybe I'll look
2: again.
0: <laughs> awesome. I hope you find a way.
3: What's Ask a,
2: Justin about pollination after our uh, talk here.
0: Oh, I definitely we'll do that. Um, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean,
3: more of a mindset than a belief, but I think, like, in general, I, I spent a lot of my life thinking that there was always, like, somebody playing chess against me no matter what I was doing. There was somebody who knew a little bit more or like had done more work or had an inside lane and, and that basically no matter what I did, there was somebody who was like, you know, just had that extra edge. And I think, you know, time and time again, I found that there wasn't, um, that the largest obstacle in the way of getting into things I wanted to do was, was myself and, you know, personal psychology. And I think for a lot of people, uh, ultimately like personal psychology is uh, the largest enemy that they're ever going to face. Um, in conquering psychology, or at least your own psychology, I think is critical, um, especially for first-time CEOs. I love
0: that. What's the best business you've ever seen? <laughs> like Tim said,
3: pollination service is interesting, but I don't think that's the best I've ever seen. Uh, probably, the, the you know, if I had to pick the one that I think is the most interesting and promising, and if you could own a piece of the GP... Uh, you'd be very happy about it, is uh, Y Combinator. Um, Just endlessly fascinating in so many ways. We do draw inspiration from Y Combinator and everything that they've been able to accomplish. And I mean, I think about YC as really their customers or the founders that they're backing. The product is really having graduated from YC and the accreditation that goes with it. And the price that they're selling it for is the equity that they're taking. And... I mean it's it's amazing. It's a compounding moat that surrounds that business over time because as they work with ambitious people who do go on to do amazing things, the brand of YC just becomes stronger and stronger over time. It becomes more and more desirable to graduate from YC. And it's I mean, it started out with batch sizes of ten, now it's batch sizes of four hundred. And they've scaled and compounded their brand and their reach. And I think if you look at the other sort of institutions that resemble them in some ways as highly desirable institutions to affiliate with i mean there are things like like you know top tier universities which have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and the brands have only grown stronger and stronger and i don't know that i would draw a line in the sand and say that yc is going to be around for 400 years but it uh wouldn't shock me if they are around for a very long time to come
0: yeah it seems almost like a luxury product for a founder to go and buy and Within that, like, what do you think of some of the mechanisms that enable that that luxury feel or that that notoriety and reputation? Perhaps it's just time that built it, but I'd be curious, what are some other things from YC that you studied that allowed them to build something like that?
2: Yeah, I,
3: you know, probably the, the single largest aspect of it, I mean, there are a few. Um, probably foremost among them is the community um, and the others that have graduated in the past and also are still involved and are adding value and the camaraderie that goes associated with that and i mean there are so many sort of uh network effect you know compounding scale advantages to what they're doing i think in our case for example we really are obsessively fixated on building a community over time um both among the uh operators that we partner with the investors that are uh, investing alongside us the companies that you know are ultimately selling uh into our fund I and mean, really, we really want to find ways for everybody to add value over time and and majority search shouldn't be just us, majority search should be the entire community that surrounds us and building uh, opportunities for others to add value too. I, I think you know, probably one thing just off the top of my head that I think about a lot is uh, the most common path for former searchers who have done incredibly well buying and growing one small company and seeing the uh, value creation that can come with that is to start investing in other searchers, and there, there are a lot of these now. And, I think it's a natural progression if the partners that we take on are doing incredibly well and are getting to the point where they're starting to think about diversifying their exposure across a couple of other businesses as well. I mean, we've got a whole portfolio of them where they can get involved and whether that means sitting on boards or being a peer mentor, I mean, finding ways for people to add value to one another. and. Almost like fostering that connectivity and that type of support because, yes, it can happen organically over time. But, you know, like so many things you actually sort of have to point in a direction and say this is the kind of thing we want to do more of for it to actually happen. If I can fast forward 10 years and say the things that I think we really want to do well, it's uh, building a community that people never outgrow.
0: I love that. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast today, but also previously and chatting with me several, several times about ideas I have or ideas that you have. It's been really, really fun to get to know both of you. So thank you for sharing this with me today.
2: Thank you, Alex. And thanks to Sam, Brandon, and Matt down here for organizing. This. It's great to get everybody together. It's a really special event that I think is an awesome thing for the whole community. Thank you. This was a ton of fun. I love this. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for
0: listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also wanna thank our show sponsors, Live Up Bank, Put in Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you wanna learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.